Welcome to the Hayes Worldwide Careers Advice Podcast, bringing you insights into the world of work. In this series, I'll be talking to experts to give you practical tips and advice on careers. I'm your host, John Beasley from Hayes, the world's largest specialist recruiter. Today, we welcome Sheree Atchison, an award-winning leader in equity, diversity, and inclusion, whose career has included spells at Deloitte, Monzo, Pecon, and now Valtech. Sheree is also a board member at Women Who Code and Neurodiversity in Business. Last year, Sheree released her book titled Demanding More, Why Diversity and Inclusion Don't Happen and What You Can Do About It. Sheree, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for having me. So just to begin with, perhaps you could introduce yourself in in your own words and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess, like you just said, I work in diversity and inclusion, and I've been doing senior leadership roles in that field for almost 10 years, or actually just over 10 years now. My work, as is the best way to describe it, is putting friction into decision making. My job is really to help people recognize bias by slowing down, putting measures of accountability in place, so as we don't just make snap decisions like we tend to do but actually take time to recognize that we do things in ways that are short-circuiting, that are biased and so on, and that we can actually change that if we really are meaningful about being inclusive. I've held lots of different roles in this space. I write for Forbes, Thompson Reuters, and a whole host of other publications. And for me, especially as someone who used to be a software engineer a really long time ago, taking a technical approach and a very clear data-driven approach to both diversity and inclusion separately is really, really important to me. And again, that's a lot of what my book Demanding More is about um, and really how I hold organisations to account with this work. Fantastic. Thank you. And you, you mentioned there that you were an engineer. So your career in education or training, if you will, has been in technology, which is a, is a sector that, you know, has a reputation of being male oriented. Can you tell us about your experiences of starting out in this in this world? Yeah, of course. So I started my career as a software engineer. Um, I studied computer science at university and then went to work in a local software house in Belfast in the north of Ireland, where I'm from. As you can maybe tell by my accent, um, although people seem to somehow think I'm either Scottish or from America as well, which are two very different places. But anyway, I've been an engineer for quite a few years and my work was really focused on creating inclusive technologies. So actually, how do people from all backgrounds with accessibility and so on use the solutions that we need to provide to everybody? So for example, I was a lead engineer on the register to vote platform in the UK. So if you've registered to vote online, you've used some code that I've written a really, really long time ago, and I'm sure people have made it much better since then. And I think for me, when I moved into that industry, I did a fair amount of work with my my university when I was there because in the 100 people within my course at the time, only 10 of us were women, including myself. So I've always been very aware, I guess, of the lack of diversity within technology, but certainly when you move into having that as an actual job, it becomes much more prevalent and much more, I guess, in your face is the best way to describe it. And for me, when I graduated in, I think that was 2013, 
it's hard it's bad that I'm struggling to remember when that was actually but I wanted to change something I wanted to do something better and you know figure out what was going on now like I said this was in Belfast that's where um, I was living and what I wanted to do was not reinvent the wheel but what I did want was to find some way to bring together the women in tech that were within Northern Ireland that were able to come together regardless of whether they were in jobs out of jobs interested in tech wanted to pivot into it, wanted to learn a new skill. But something that was really important to me is um, socioeconomic background. As someone who comes from a poor background, who was raised on free school meals, I never wanted to create something that put another element of exclusion into the process. For example, you know, charging people for events and so on whenever that would mean we were leaving people behind. And so that's when I found Women Who Code. Now, at that stage, Women Who Code was a non-profit or before it became a non-profit, a global meetup dedicated to women in technology based in San Francisco. And it had around 3000 global members, but we didn't have anything like it in the UK specifically and certainly not in Belfast. And so I guess I took it on myself to bring it across the water. I launched it in Belfast. I then launched it in London, Bristol, Edinburgh, Dublin, different parts of Europe and so on. But I built that structure in the UK from zero to over 10,000 and counting members. I built remote teams to own it, creating partnerships with big companies, small companies and everything in between, because the real purpose of that organization is to change the face of tech. We know there is a gender disparity. And the great thing about Women Who Code Now, um, where I sit as a board member, it is the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in technology with over 300,000 global members and a presence in over 80 cities. So what's really fantastic about it is that it provides free monthly meetups in all of its locations. Now, why that's important is that we can't just focus our efforts, for example, on the main big cities, you know, the Londons, the San Francisco's, for example, but actually all of the other places that we see technology growing in, coming out of the woodwork, being prioritised in cities and so on. It's really key that we provide inclusive ways and networks for in this case, women in technology to come together. And I think that's a really important point when we think about the gender disparity that we have. Women Who Code is providing an equitable measure in that. And, you know, I very much hope that there's a day that we don't need Women Who Code, but we're not there just yet. That's great to hear of, you know, so much progress made in such a such a short space of time. And, you know, it's uh, it's fantastic to hear, uh, you know, about how uh, Women Who Code has, has grown so much. What advice would you offer our listeners, you know, who are uh, embarking on a career path where perhaps they don't fit the typical demographic? For sure. Um, I think what's really important is firstly, sit and recognise that your voice is very much needed. Um, And there's a a really important point to that because you cannot, we cannot create, you know, solutions, designs, applications, apps and so on for society without all of society being involved in that creation, whether that's through design, development, testing and so on. Different voices are really, really important here because otherwise we create teams of people that are homogeneous and do not reflect actually the people that are using it. What I would suggest is that as hard as it may sound is to recognize that you are very much a needed person in the industry. And yes, it means that you might be underrepresented for the time being on for now, but what you bring is an entirely new perspective. And that new perspective has an ability to change the trajectory 
of the things that we create. And I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to be a part of. Thanks, Shuri. And, you know, building on that, it's, it's, it's important that employees and candidates, you know, show what, what they can bring to organisations. So reflecting on, on your experience and learnings, what steps can people take uh, so they, they're they able to understand and recognise their potential and also make sure that their voice is heard? I think that there's, there's two parts to that. So when it comes to recognising your potential, what I always suggest to people, and so I coach quite a few people, I sponsor quite a few people in the industry because I think that's important. But what I always get people to do is spend time writing down their their, their perception of their strengths and growth areas. It's very easy if I was to ask you right now, you know, what are your strengths and what are your growth areas? You might rattle off a few different bullet points, but actually it's usually very on the surface. But what people And what I want people to know, especially underrepresented people, is to really dig deep and recognize what am I really good at? What is it that sets me apart from everybody else? But also, what do I need to get better at? Because ultimately, if you can know what it is that you need to get better at before somebody else tells you, you have an opportunity to fill that gap with growth opportunities, trainings, and so on. That awareness, that self-awareness is really, really key in getting ahead. I think for me personally, as someone who's 30, 30, a vice president in a global company, a multi-award winning leader and a published author, that's largely been down to the self-awareness that I've really spent with my career going through that. And then when it comes to getting your voice heard, what I think is really important here, actually, before we even talk about, um, you know, let's say people that are underrepresented getting their voice heard, I want to recognize or people to recognize that sit in leadership or sit in the rooms that need to listen, that you do need to listen. What's really key here is that we have leaders that recognize that purposeful listening is much more important than they think. And all too often, we tend to facetiously listen. Now, the difference in that is, if I give you an example, if you think of when somebody's talking to you, have you already made your response up in your head and are you just waiting for your turn to speak? Or are you actually sitting back, listening to what they're saying, then you'll take a few seconds to digest it and then you provide an answer. Because actually for the person that's speaking, it's two very different experiences. So firstly, we need people to change there. We need leaders to recognize that you need to listen properly, not facetiously. And then when it comes to people sharing their ideas and having their voices heard, Sometimes I think confidence, um, actually I know that confidence can be a huge barrier for people for obvious reasons. When I bring it back to that self-awareness piece, when you are acutely aware of what you're good at or maybe need to grow on, I think that really, really helps with confidence and then feeling comfortable sharing ideas. The other thing that I think is useful from a practical sense is sharing ideas in a safe space. You know, you don't have to start out on huge big events or huge big meetings that maybe feel slightly daunting, but actually look at what you can do in, let's say, smaller team meetings, even in one-to-ones and building up your confidence from there taking it in a safe space. And that was, again, one of the reasons why I launched Women Who Code was because we held lightning talks across all of our regions. And that gave women, for example, opportunities to share for 10 or 15 minutes or less than an idea that they had in a really safe, open, welcoming space that they could still receive feedback on. So have a think about the different ways that you can do that as well. You know, you don't have to jump head first into everything. Pace yourself. And I think that will really help your confidence grow. 
Great, thank you very much. And, you know, it's, it's vital that organisations uh, themselves in, empower their employees. Unfortunately, I'm sure that there'll be people that are listening who might feel uncomfortable in speaking out when their employers are taking the right steps towards diversity and inclusion. In this instance, how can an individual not only gather the confidence to, to raise their views, but also how do they decide who is the best person to approach? I think I think the, the first piece is recognizing that psychological safety has to be a core part of your business slash inclusion strategy. Both of those things are relatively the same. And what that means is that you have avenues for people to share things in a way that may be anonymous. So as regardless of whether they are an intern or your VP or your CEO, whatever, whoever that is, they have an avenue to share that means they aren't worried about potential repercussions and so on. So they have that safe space. There's lots of great tools for that. Pecon is one of them where I used to work at and that I use regularly because it allows people to share at any time when you survey anonymously, you can have conversations and so on. When I when it comes to people, for example, maybe if that avenue doesn't exist, what I would suggest is that if you are potentially, let's say, quite junior or maybe mid-tier, is that you find someone in senior leadership potentially that you trust to talk to them about this first. If that means that they are, you have someone then who can help voice your, those concerns on your behalf, if you are worried about doing it yourself, then use that avenue. I will. I always say to in any company that I work, if anybody wants to raise things, for example, and they maybe don't want to do so anonymously, but want to talk to someone confidentially, they can come to me or they can come to, you know, their people and culture lead and so on. So you can always use someone else who potentially is more senior to help raise those issues for you. The other thing is that there's power in numbers as well. Um, and if we're talking about, let's say, a conversation that a group wants to have, keep in mind that you don't always have to be the only person fighting a battle or raising an issue, but actually coming together and sharing collective conversation points or discussions can be really useful and also potentially feel safer psychologically for you too. Um, but I would urge the, the real thing that changes the dial on people sharing is companies creating safe spaces for people to do so. And that absolutely should be their priority. Thank you very much. Moving on now, so some of our listeners will be more privileged, not always necessarily, mm. you know, in terms of their position in an organisation, but also, you know, uh, within society as well. What can they do to make a positive difference? I think I think privilege is such an important conversation and all of my work is rooted in privilege awareness from unearthing privilege in processes, in policy implementations to hiring and everything in between. And I, I think the key thing here, firstly, is the self-awareness of privilege. And certainly some as myself, I, I very much describe myself as underrepresented, but privileged. I'm a senior woman of colour in the industry um, from a poor socioeconomic background, first person in my, my family to go to university and, and all, a whole host of other things from being adopted in, from Sri Lanka and raised in Ireland. But I'm also very privileged now in that I now have no financial worries. I am a senior leader that is listened to, which is the biggest privilege of all. Um, and I am able to comfortably exist in many, many ways that, you know, many other, for example, women of colour are not. And what I think is key here is recognising that allyship, which is the meaningful action of changing the trajectory and the environments of inclusion for other groups of people, whether you identify or don't identify with them, is really key here. But recognising the nuance of allyship 
um, allyship isn't one or zero in the same way that privilege isn't one or zero. All too often we take a, a binary view of privilege and we break it down, let's say, by gender or ethnicity or disability, but we never overlap the conversation, recognising that actually we can also be underrepresented potentially and still be allies for other people. You know, I can very much be working on my allyship for the black community, for example, or for the LGBT plus community, for example. And I think it's really key that we think about meaningful changes that we can do. And at, at a top level, there should be how we listen more, how we make sure that we are actively listening regularly to different experiences other than our own. Secondly, that we are on a consistent journey of education so that we are seeking out to learn about those experiences globally, different regions, different nuances, and taking that on board. One of the reasons I wrote Demanding More was that all too often people start an allyship journey from trying to make everything better, but they don't spend time educating themselves on what has happened in the past to bring us to this, this point right now that we're in, which really has been people have made decisions based on exclusion deliberately. So education is key. And then I want people to move into action. You know, what can I change? What decisions can I change? How can I hold myself and my peer group to account? How can I simply do things differently around my language, around who I deem important enough to listen to, to hire, to promote and so on? And I think that the combination of that listening, that awareness, moving into education and action is really key when it's about making a change. Um, and what I would suggest is that you recognize that this is a journey. You know, we don't just change everything overnight, but the first point of action here is recognizing that you play a role in making things better than you find them. Excellent. Thank you. Many of our listeners, you know, might might be job searching at present. What what are the indicators that an organization is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and isn't just paying lip service? I think the first thing is transparency. What's really important when it comes to businesses showcasing and embracing diversity and inclusion journeys is that they actively share the data that they have on where they're at right now. That data may not be good, okay, it may not have good representation throughout various different areas, but they are still sharing it to be open and honest about that because they want to share about where they're trying to get to. So always look for that, look for data that's open and honest. The second thing is look for appropriate dedication to diversity and inclusion internally. Now, for example, I think it's really important that when you have DNI leaders that they have experience from doing that work, that it isn't just a token role dedicated to passion versus skill set, because then things don't change. Look at the the level that that person sits at. Are they in decision making rooms? Do they feed into business strategy? Who do they report to? I think that's really important to analyze and see what makes sense if that person does exist within the business. And then the third thing is actually when you go into those interviews, ask about what's important to you. And if diversity and inclusion is one of those things, which I would hope it is, openly ask what they're doing in that work. How are they trying to create environments that work for everyone? Or are they on that journey at all? And use that as part of your reasoning as to whether you want to work there or not. I think it's easy for organisations to potentially be performative in this space if they only do things or they only share information around flagship events, for example, like International Women's Day, Black History Month, Pride and so on. But actually what you want to see is transparency in those reportings and so on throughout the year. And I think that's what I always look for. You know, when I 
when I moved to Valtech and I had lots of different offers from different companies, um, the reason that I chose Valtech was that the honesty that they had was very, very open. They were very honest and said, you know what, we know we need to do something. We don't really know what the something is, but we know that's where we would have you because you are the expert to help us do that. And that's all I needed to know. I seen the data. I knew it wasn't exactly where we needed to be, but I can help change that because I sit in those senior levels as well. So I think it's it's key to analyze it in the way that you would analyze you know, job opportunity or career growth. Take it in the same frame of mind. Great, thank you. And we, we, we're coming to to the end of the interview now. You know, uh, uh, regular listeners will know that this is a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. Um, if you had one piece of advice to to help our listeners, you know, navigate their careers, you know, especially against the backdrop of uh, the pandemic and, and beyond, what would that be? My, my best piece of advice for people navigating their careers, you know, throughout something like a global pandemic or just in general is do not put so much pressure on yourself and create goals that have time limits on them. One of the things that I've noticed the most, especially with a lot of the folks that I mentor, is that we we as people time box everything, you know, by 30, I want to have done this by X, I want to have earned Y and so on. But actually life happens. And, um, you know, the last two years have shown us that that you cannot plan for life. It pivots, it changes, it throws huge curveballs at you. And what I try to suggest to people is instead of creating those huge goals that may be directly attached to a time limit, open it up. Think about what state of mind that you want to be in when you achieve that goal or what what's happening around you when you achieve that goal, but also set goals that are much, much smaller. I think it's very easy for all of us to only focus on the big goals without recognizing that actually we have to accomplish so many small, tiny things along the way. And those small, tiny things are very much worth celebrating. So in the short version of that is celebrate the small wins, embrace that it's a journey and don't put too much pressure on yourselves. That's uh, some fantastic advice. Jerry, thank you so much for all the insights that you've given us today. I, I feel like we've, you know, covered quite a bit in such a such a for short sure. time, you know, and it's it's all extremely useful. And I've no doubt that, you know, our listeners are, have got plenty to, to go away with and, and to think on as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to find out more about the topics that we've just discussed today, then uh, Cherie's book, Demanding More, is out now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hayes Worldwide Careers Advice Podcast. If you have found this advice useful, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the same time, if you have any questions or suggestions for future podcast episodes, feel free to reach out to us via email at socialmedia at hayes.com.